You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Felix Levin from the Higher School of Economics in St. Petersburg. His paper was entitled Jeffrey Keating's Forest Fasair Aaron and the Discourse of Commonwealth. So the current paper is concerned with the discursive dimension of early modern European state building, in particular with the way individuals reflect its on the changes in the political and social order. The ambiguity of pre-modern discourse of commonwealths makes it hard to examine. By this I mean that there was no articulate dichotomy between state and society, which were identical or similar phenomena, for example, in the British Isles. I would like to say a few words about the meaning of the word commonwealth and confusion around it. According to the etymological dictionary, commonweal appeared in English in the 14th century and commonwealth in the middle of the 15th century, originally as a translation of the Latin term respublica. Commonwealth inherited terminological ambiguity of the Latin term, which was also frequently used as a synonym for civitas, society. Therefore, in the early modern time, the word commonwealth denoted a, the state in a narrow sense, meaning the order and organization of the government, the political community as a whole in a wider sense, and see the public use of goods or the common benefit. The concept of the commonwealth was blurred because it did not distinguish between the apparatus of government and community and could be used in the multiple meanings in the same text. In other words, the complicated nature of the word entailed its possible usage for describing the object of government, the goal of government, and the agents of government. My paper will focus on the social implications of the, per- of the first part of the compound term, common in particular on the agents of the commonwealth in whose interests the government was obliged to act and the social limits of the word commonwealth. The discursive practices of commonwealth in early modern England are well researched, unlike early modern Ireland. The emergence of a new social order in Tudor and Stuart Ireland heavily influenced the transformation of the language of political culture and the discourse of commonwealth was the resource of the reflection on contemporary situation in Ireland. Nowadays, it is recognized that English legal and political terminology was adapted to the Irish language as well. For example, at the beginning of the 17th century, the word commonwealth was translated into Irish as Machis Fubliche. According to the electronic dictionary of the Irish language, the first time Machis Fubliche had emerged in the text in Irish was in the poem, though you sing tags that I did not write, possibly composed in 1608 and attributed to Robert MacArthur. In one of the parts of the poem, he defends the race of Ehriman and blames Tyke for condemning most of the righteous judgments of earthly law passed for the common good, end of quote. 
In this case, what Mahis Publiche appears to be a literal translation of commonwealth with the meaning common good benefit. A more prominent case of the usage of the term commonwealth in Irish texts in the first half of the 17th century can be found in Forest Fasar Ehring and Tribirhichian Vash, Three Shaft of Death, written by the famous Irish history writer Geoffrey Keating. I would like to remind that Geoffrey Keating belonged to the old English Catholic family of Keatings in County Tipperary, who descended from the first generation of Anglo-Norman settlers in Ireland. Keating obtained theological education in France in 1600s and returned to Ireland in 1610, where he worked as a priest in the Diocese of Lismore. In 1634-1635, he completed Forest Pastor Erin, which was dedicated to the history of Ireland from the deluge to the coming of Anglo-Normans. It is acknowledged that Geoffrey Keating's Forest Fossa was a present-centered narrative which incorporated some of the contemporary perceptions of power and values. One of the still domineering features of pre-modern history writing was its retrospective way of narrating the past. One of the consequences of the anachronistic tendency of history writing was modernization of the past and, correspondingly, the archaization of contemporary secular and ecclesiastical institutions. Therefore, the image of the past was quite static and the scope for change was quite limited. In accordance with this logic and their individual preferences, early modern intellectuals tended to trace history of contemporary institutions far back into distant past. As far as Britain is concerned, Colin Keat calls such kind of discourse about institutions the myth of immemorialism, whereas John Pocock identified it as discourse of ancient constitution in which the origins of the institutions were projected into times immemorial, and they had changed nature until present was emphasized. Geoffrey Keating's Forest Fossil Airing created such kind of discourse for Ireland. Kingship Act of 1541 defined the modes of thinking about Ireland, and Keating portrayed its ancient history in such a way as he imagined contemporary Ireland, as a centralized monarchy which existed from the time of the High King Slangye on the top of Fir Bullock, he did it by resorting to the myth of high kingship of Labrugawola, by extracting different fragments about kingship from other Irish sources which suited his purpose, by modifying some words which led to the transformation of the original meaning, and by inserting his own commands to the copied material. In his representation, Ireland was united under the authority of the high king from the pagan times. Keating downgraded the status of the provincial kings, turning them into vassals of the king of Ireland, to whom they paid tribute. The High King convened Fesh of Tara, a predecessor of the Parliament, and his jurisdiction was concerned with the whole island. Therefore, with the help of manipulation of the sources, Keating tried to attach insular meaning to the kingship of Tara and its institutes. As far as Anglo-Norman conquest is concerned, Keating propagated its legitimacy because the Irish nobility, including the High King of Ireland, Roadi or Conhabar, paid homage to Henry II as the Lord of Ireland. Even though Keating refrained from calling Henry II the king of Ireland, it was implied so. Although Keating stuck to the Irish native narrative strategies, which limited the possibility of change in the writing patterns, new political vocabulary found its way into Forest Fossa. For example, Keating deliberately emphasized that the Irish kings obtained the Irish kingdom, Rigacht, the word which emerged in Irish at the beginning of early modern time. Whereas, according to Labrugawala Erin, the Irish kings obtained authority, Rige, over Ireland. Another word which is the focus of the current paper is Mahis Hubliche, Commonwealth. 
There is only one occasion in the text, but the fragment is very indicative of Keating's thinking. You can find the whole fragment in original and Danin's translation in your handouts, but I will read just uh, several bits of it. The Danin's translation, mainly. Now, start of quote. Now the reason why one person is made king over tribes and over districts is in order that each one in his own principality should be obedient to him and that none of them should have power to resist or oppose him during his sovereignty and to have it understood that it was by God who is Lord and ruler over all that he has been appointed king over the peoples to govern them. <laughs> and thus in the beginning of the ages it was the learned and those who were most zealous for the aggrandizement of the public will that the man violent elected to rule the districts until Patrick came with the power in the church. So I have numbered three cases, in my opinion, of using the commonwealth. In my opinion, Danin's translation is not very accurate in conveying Keating's message, so I have proposed my suggestions concerning the meaning of this fragment. So in the case one and in the case two, so Danin translates, so tribes, first one, and peoples. So, in the cases uh, one and two, Keating uses the word publiach as an Irish analog of the Latin word publicus, meaning relating to the people of the people. In other words, he uses it as a substantive adjective denoting the collective body. So, in the third case, Danin translates on vahes publici domi veduga as aggrandizement of the public will. Such kind of translation is justified enough, but I would rather translate it as considering the commonwealth in order to communicate the authorial context better, since the verb dagit, according to the dictionary, means to weigh, ponder, judge. Keating implies that the most capable people offered counsel to the kings of uh, Ireland so that they root in consideration of the commonwealth. Therefore, Keating uses commonwealth in two meanings, as a political community and as a principle of government. In the same fragment of the text, Keating explains who constitutes this political community. Again, you can find the quotation in your handouts. So, start of quote. And since the coming of Patrick, it was the bishops and the nobles and the chroniclers who elected the kings and lords until the Norman invasion. End of quote. I will return to the composition of political community a little later, uh, but now I would like to comment on the issue of elections. So in Forest Fossa, kings were not elected, but more often they not took, not took the throne by force. Keating resorted to the famous theory of Lex Regia, according to which the people voluntarily surrender and confer imperium on the ruler. It is assumed that Keating was heavily influenced by the second scholastic movement, represented by Francisco de Vitoria, Francisco Suarez, and Roberto Bellarmino. For example, de Vitoria, referring to the uh, Pauline epistles to the Romans, let every soul be in subjection to the high powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. So Francisco uh, de Vitoria claimed that only the God is the source of power, whereas the people uh, is the source of authority. In other words, the political community authorizes the ruler, but when it surrenders to the king, it gives all the power to the head of the body and thus divests itself of the power. Therefore, Keating believed in the divine right of the kings 
at the same time assuming that the commonwealth is the source of their authority, since only the consent of the root legitimizes the power of the ruler. The government without the consent of the root is tyranny. Keating's attitude towards tyranny conforms to the viewpoint expressed in the treatise the Regnat Regim Cupri on the kingdom to the king of Cyprus attributed to Thomas Aquinas. Keating does not deny the idea that if political community elects the monarch by surrendering voluntarily to him, it can depose the king, provided he fails to rule in the common benefit and to maintain peace. Like the author of the treatise, Keating advised against active resistance, implied obedience to unjust ruler, and recommended relying on God, who is the only one to institute power in the earthly world. Therefore, tyranny is the punishment for sin, and the divine grace in the form of disposal of tyranny will come as soon as the community will repent for its sins. And for as far as Akitin shows how tyranny is overcome in the due course of time. Returning to Lex Regia, I would like to stress that it was instrumental for Keating in his reconsideration of the chaos of power relations in Ireland. Irish political community voluntarily surrendered to practically everybody who took the Irish throne. That is how uh, it assembled to confer the authority of uh, Ireland upon the Pope Urban II in 1092 and to pay homage to the King of England in 1172. Keating adhered to the Catholic royal theory of the Commonwealth, according to which King is the sovereign head of the political body to whom subjects owe their obedience. In the absence of the sovereign, it is incapable of action because the harmony is broken. Keating, as well as the majority of old English elite, recognized secular authority of the king. It is also necessary to highlight participatory character of the discourse of Commonwealth and Forest Fossa, which is in line with the traditional medieval adaptation of the Aristotelian theory of the mixed government. Monarchy is a good government if it is dominium politicum et regale, as English jurist John Fortescue put in his famous treatise on the English laws. King rules the people by the laws they have given their consent to. Keating several times stresses that the Feast of Tara was an assembly of nobility and the learned man, Olaf's, which every king convened in order to renew rules and, and rules and laws. Therefore, in Keating's opinion, the Feast of Tara made the king's power political. The participation in such kind of mixed, mixed government involves only electing the king, counseling him when he needs to, and performing offices given by the monarch. According to Keating, the Feast of Tara consisted of lay and ecclesiastical nobility and the learned man, by whom he means chroniclers and olives. Such kind of composition of the political community is traditional enough. Keen, nobles, and the wise men. Therefore, Keating expresses a conservative view on the commonwealth as a society of orders, a cooperative whole composed of harmonious interrelated parts in which each group contributes to the common good according to the prescribed function. The prosperity of the commonwealth is defined by unavailability of its hierarchical structure, which Keating describes in three shafts of death as descending grades of honor, Pope, Emperor, King, Princes, Dukes, Marquises, and Earls. In Forest Foster, he provides the audience with example of how the common good could be violated when traditional hierarchy is not sustained and one of the ranks of society fails to carry out its functions. 
So it could happen if the kings of Ireland rule justly, but Gideon prefers not to focus on this plot. Or if the throne is captured by a legitimate claimant who is non-noble or the foreigner. Gideon's discourse of commonwealths represented one of the types of old English discourse of commonwealths, royalist in relation to the prerogatives of the crown, but oppositional as far as policy of the English monarchy in Ireland was concerned. So you can see on the slide the table. So this table is without doubt a very broad generalization of existing understandings of the commonwealth in early modern Ireland. But again, in my opinion, it is quite useful for the purpose of the current paper. The ideology of the reform of Ireland shared by Protestant officials from England and Old English elite was based on the Aristotelian notion that Ireland was still not a commonwealth because of the lack of self-sufficiency, since before the Kingship Act, the Gaelic areas as well as the island had been in pre-political condition. The actions of English monarchs and Dublin administrations were mainly defined by the idea that there was one commonwealth of England and Ireland, since Irish crown was united and knit to the imperial crown of the realm of England. In other words, Irish commonwealth was not sufficient enough without England, and this understanding lent legitimacy to the Poynings law, restricting the legislative autonomy of Irish parliament. Although the old English landlords agreed that the Commonwealth of Ireland was in need of reform, they interpreted the Kingship Act differently and emphasized that Irish Commonwealth was separate from England, enjoying the same monarch as the head of the Commonwealth. Native elites challenging the authority of English Privy Council and Parliament over Ireland articulated the idea of Irish polity as communitas perfecta, whose origin dates back to the statement of the Parliament held in 1460. The land of Ireland is and at all times has been corporate of itself, freed over the burden of any special law of the realm of England. In my opinion, Keating alludes to this corporatist idea when he says, again, you... Uh, yes, so when he says, I think Stanley Hurst, out of quote, has not understood, you can find this uh, quotation in your handouts, I think Stanley Hurst has not understood that it is thus Ireland was a kingdom apart by herself. Old English elite was confused by the changing structure of government in Ireland, the participation in which was denied by the crown. Since the Elizabethan times, the most important officers in Ireland, such as Lord Deputies, Lord Chancellors, Privy Councillors, and Provincial Presidents, had been distributed mainly among the English officials or new English nobility created by the English monarch. Thus, traditional title nobility of Ireland had to deal with the new reality according to which not all nobles could participate in the government. They have used that the main function, duty, and inherent right of the nobility was to offer counsel to the crown were heavily challenged by the monarchs and Dublin administration. The crown and the Lord deputies emphasized, constantly emphasized, the exclusive character of the Council of Ireland in which only those who were chosen in such a capacity could participate. Therefore, in response to infiltration of upstarts into Irish political community, the Old English articulated the defensive discourse of commonwealths, which was aimed at protecting traditionally hierarchical structure of the ruling class. The discourse was concentrated on the ancient rights of nobility to, to be commonwealth men. Thus, it was concerned with preservation rather than alteration, and implicitly questioned the prerogative of the crown to change the structure of the ruling class and idealize the past. Such kind of lament is manifested in Forest Fossa. Again, you can find the whole quotation in your handouts. So, 
Start of the quotes. I ask Steinhurst which were the more honorable, the more noble, or the more loyal to the crown of England, or which were better securities for preserving Ireland to the crown of England, the colonists of Fingal, or the noble earls of the foreigners who are in Ireland. And the quotes, because then Keating starts enumerating Anglo-Norman families who contracted alliances with Gaelic landlords. This quotation reveals serious differences between Keating's discourse of Commonwealth and that of his old English contemporaries, especially those residing in the English Pale. Keating expanded the ethnic borders of the true political community of Ireland by including old English and Gaelic nobility and the vice men of the whole island into it. This new political union of the multitude was classified as the Irish Forest Fossil. Thus, Keating's perspective on the Irish Commonwealth was definitely insular and protonational one. Furthermore, the discourse of ancient constitution of Forest Fossa was radically conservative, contesting the necessity of reform per se. According to Keating, Ireland had already been a commonwealth even before the Anglo-Norman conquest and correspondingly was civilized enough to pursue political life, the fact which was denied by the English officials and intellectuals. Therefore, Forest Fossa Erin provided historical legitimation for the claims of Irish Catholic nobility based on a more ancient and integrative model. Keating included both Old English and Gaelic nobles into Commonwealth men, thus extending the boundaries of the political class responsible for governing Ireland, and projected the ancient constitutions into the pre-Christian period when the Kingdom of Ireland was established. Several conclusions about the discourse of Commonwealth and Forest Fossa can be made. As far as Irish context is concerned, it can be said that Keating used the term Commonwealth in two meanings as a synonym of political body and as a principle of government for the common benefit. The main feature of the discourse of Commonwealth and Forest Fossa was an idea of distinction of Ireland as a separate Commonwealth from England and an inclusive description of the political community from which the Protestant settlers were possibly excluded. Moreover, Commonwealth was a personified abstraction since every time the discourse of Commonwealth emerged in the text, vested interests were implied. That is why there were various discourses of commonwealths in early modern Ireland. In the European context, the discourse of commonwealths of Forest Fossa is a variation of medieval corporatism and represented a conservative reflection on state-building process of early modern monarchies, as a result of which some nobles began to lose the monopoly on the most influential positions in the government. In response to the processes of displacement, a defensive discourse of commonwealths was instrumentalized, in which commonwealths was understood as a well-ordered society. A very indicative definition can be found in the book of the government written by Thomas Elliot in 1534. A public will, start of quote, is a body living, uh, compact, or made of sundry states and degrees of man, which is disposed by the order of equity and governed by the rule and moderation of reason. And it may not be called order, except it do contain in it degrees high and base according to the merit or estimation of the sin that is ordered. End of quote. Therefore, the best form of political society was such a society in which social distinctions were preserved. This understanding of commonwealth was medieval and was concerned with the issues of hierarchy, order, and degree. For Keating and his Catholic contemporaries, there was no commonwealth in Ireland since the harmonious state was not maintained. One part of it could not fulfill its political functions prescribed by its rank. So that is all. Thank you for your attention. Then looking forward to your questions, comments, and queries. Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.